The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. If you'd like to find out more about us and how we strive to be a gospel-centered, city-focused church community, visit us at missioday.org. Ephesians 6.10 Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me real quick. God, we love you. We are thankful that your word is true. We are thankful that you fill us with your spirit to take on anything that can come at us. God, I pray that your words would go forth and that we would be changed to be like you today. Amen. So today, uh, we're talking about spiritual warfare, as we looked at. And we often think about spiritual warfare as like the extraordinary things, like the cosmic forces, and it's certainly not absent of those things, but I think what we fail to see is that it is really in our everyday, ordinary life. So like this week, I've been like crazy sick all week. Spiritual warfare? Maybe. Uh, This morning, get my car, excited to come and be with you guys. I have a scalding hot cup of coffee and I pour half of it in my lap. Spiritual warfare? Definitely. (laughs) The Golden State Warriors signing every possible all-star to their team. Probably not spiritual warfare, but it makes me weep. (laughs) The point here is that Paul, I think, is instructing us that There's so much that we don't see that is going on in the life of a believer. Evil forces, spiritual warfare that we are battling against. Paul Tripp, an author and counselor, says this. Spiritual warfare makes us think of demon possession, horrific demonstrations of satanic control, and dramatic exorcisms. But scripture presents spiritual warfare not as the violent, bizarre end of the Christian life, but as what the Christian life is. So I think the vast majority of us have an anemic understanding of the spiritual warfare that is happening as we walk through our ordinary lives. I think Paul knows that. I think he's pointing us in this text to be mindful of that. So that's what I wanna do today. Look at what the apostle is instructing us as a warning. Before we jump in, I will do my best not to cough. I'll do my best not to have my voice crack like a teenager. 
I will judge you if you laugh at me. You know this. So we see Paul warning us that we have an enemy in this text. We have an enemy who is scheming against us, seeking our destruction. We have an enemy who is scheming against us, seeking our destruction. So the first thing we need to ask is who is our enemy? In this text we see that he is called the devil. Also referred to throughout scripture as the accuser, the slanderer, enemy, tempter, adversary, destroyer, evil one, father of lies, the great dragon, the serpent of old, this is Satan. He is, was the chief of angels we see in Isaiah and Ezekiel, and he has a great fall because of his pride and desire to be like our God, and he is cast into the pit of hell. He first shows up in scripture in Genesis, where God in Genesis one makes the world, creates the world, creates man, everything is good, they're walking in the presence of God, and we see the snake enter into the picture in Genesis three, which is Satan, speaking lies and deceit to the children of man, tempting them to distrust and disobey God, and they do. Everything goes bad from there. They rebel against God, and he literally removes them from his presence, forces them out of the garden, all because of our enemy. Throughout scripture, we see very clearly the chief desire of Satan, our enemy, is to accuse, deceive, attack, and oppress men to sin against and rebel against God that we might die. The chief end of Satan is to accuse, attack, oppress, push men to sin and rebel against God. So that leads to the question, what's sin? We see the example in Genesis where God says, don't eat this fruit, and they do, and they, they sin against God. Well, what about today? A common word for sin in the New Testament literally means missing the mark. What that might be referring to is the unlimited ways that we fall short of God's expectations or plan or desire for our life. Missing the mark, missing God's expectations for us. Another definition that I really like is by a theologian named Herman Bavink. He says this, though sin is appalling, appallingly many-sided, with untold moral dimensions, at its heart, it is a religious revolt against God, and thus appropriately summarized as lawlessness. So he's saying here, at its heart of all sin, although it is many-faceted, many-sided, it's a revolt against God and, and literally lawlessness. To obey, to serve God is lawful. To revolt against God is lawless. It's essentially putting our will and our desires above the will and desires of our good and righteous God. For all intensive purposes, sin is a cosmic rebellion against our God. Sin is a cosmic rebellion against our God. So we first see sin in Genesis 3, like I mentioned before, where man listens to the serpent, does what God says for them to not do. We see that referred to again later in Romans, Romans 5. 5.12, it says, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So this is really important. That moment in the garden where the serpent tempted men to sin and rebel against God, everything went bad from there. Romans tells us that through that sin, death enters into the world, which, which is not good for us. 
Example of this is uh, yesterday. I, I wasn't feeling all week well, well all week, and so I uh, stepped out of the house to finish up preparing the sermon. My lovely, gracious wife agreed to hang with our three kids, one, two, and three. Uh, that is crazy. We try not to leave our house with a one, two, and three-year-old. It is most certainly spiritual warfare. Demons screaming everywhere. Uh, but so she agrees to keep them, bless her, and she gets uh, bold and takes them to go to Target to buy them toys. She's so generous. So she bought our two boys, the two and three-year-olds, these like pretty cool electronic toys. One's like a dinosaur, you press his head, it like bites stuff. The other one's a Paw Patrol helicopter, lots of sounds and lights and everything, these electronic toys. And they get home and they're playing outside and we always keep like a big, like almost like a barrel bucket of water that they can play in. And she tells them, do not put your beautiful new electronic toys in the water. Simple, all the fun will end. Like literally 40 seconds later, she turns her back, both like jump in the water, toys completely submerged, like baptism. Uh, what happens? Those toys break. Similarly, God gives us a good set of laws to obey that's for our good, and we just can't help ourselves. Like, we, want, we want the fruit, we want to put the toy in the water. I had someone after the last service comment on this, he's like, man, that's crazy. It doesn't change whether you're five years old or 50 years old. Like, it seems like that's still in us. Things go bad when we rebel against God. Another way to look at sin is man's desertion of God. So not only do we rebel against God, we are essentially choosing to serve the purposes of the enemy of God. So if Satan is all about getting us to sin against God, rebel against him, and die, when we choose to sin, we choose to align ourselves with God's enemy. We rather serve with the enemy and desert our loving God than be with him and have life. Author, incredibly brilliant Bible scholar named Jen Wilkin at a church in Texas, comments on Genesis 3, where the serpent tempts man to eat of the fruit in this way. They were given the chance to reflect God, and instead they chose to rival God. What, she, what is she saying there? God creates man and woman in his image. Their job was to reflect his goodness in worship, and instead of doing that, they choose to rebel against him, rival against him, and join forces with the enemy. So that is sin and that is our fall, but how does this serpent scheme against us to our destruction? This is really, really important. Paul, elsewhere in Corinthians, he, he talks about this. He says that we, we, we need to not be outwitted by Satan. We need to not be ignorant of his designs. It's like Satan is a formidable foe. He's been around for quite some time and he's got a, a lot of effort, a lot, a lot of uh, groundwork into making you distrust God. We need to be very careful, we need to pay attention. Likely he has a multitude, maybe an infinite number of schemes against man, and we are not gonna cover all of them today, but I do wanna point to four. So four ways that Satan schemes against us to sin against God and ultimately lead to our death. First, Satan deceives us by only showing us the pleasures of sin and denying certain destruction that will follow. Again, Satan deceives us by only showing us the pleasure of sin while denying the certain destruction that will follow. Back in the garden, we see Satan 
speaking to the woman, asking questions, getting her to look at the thing that God said don't touch, and, or not don't touch, but don't eat. And literally says, if you eat of that, you won't die. I know God said you'll die, but you won't die. Jen Wilkin comments again on this. She says, when Eve eats the fruit, she does not immediately die. And so her thought is likely, God is a liar. So then Adam eats the fruit, because clearly the serpent is the one who's told the truth. But as soon as they taste it, they are surely dying. So what does that mean? Literally, when Eve eats the fruit, she, she doesn't die. Like, she's still there, right? Although God said, if you eat that fruit, you will die. Satan, Satan said, you will not die. So it is likely that in that moment, she was tempted with the pleasure of the fruit. And because of God's mercy, she didn't die. Not that moment. Satan does that. He gives us the pleasures of sin and denies the destruction that it will follow. But what do we know? Things did go bad. When they ate the fruit, they were dying. The literal trajectory of the universe changed because they took a bite of that. So I think that plays out today in a, a ton of ways. I mean, think of anything that is sinful that is like fun or pleasurable, like, like everything. So like drinking, uh, anything to do with sexual immorality. Like no one is up here denying that that's not fun stuff. But what Satan so often does, he slips in and shows you the pleasure and does everything he can to deny that it will destroy you. I would also point to things that are not so taboo, like what about food? I think there's pretty strong charges against gluttony and not making your stomach your God, but so often we're, we're tempted by the pleasurable thing right in front of us and we are deceived to deny the destruction that it will lead to. Secondly, Satan, Satan's accusations cause us to fixate on our sin and forget our savior. Again, Satan's accusations cause us to fixate on our sin and forget our savior. So this becomes an all-out assault on man when they take the sin, they take the fruit, they engage in the pleasure then it is a heavy, shameful weight that we feel in our heads because of our sin. And I think Satan works as hard as he can to keep that in front of us. Keep thinking about how much you've overspent. Feel the weight of the crushing debt on your soul. Keep thinking about how you're so stuck in porn or you're so stuck in addiction he tells you, he whispers to you, look at everything you'll lose if you get this out. Look at everything that people will think about you if you let people into this. It is so deceptive because he's getting you to focus on the shame of your sin at the cost of focusing on your savior. We look so intently on our sin that we forget that Jesus our savior is bigger and stronger than all of our sin. There's no weight that he cannot lift from our head. Thirdly, Satan distracts us to be satisfied with our performance or the works of our hands. 
Satan distracts us to be satisfied with our performance or the works of our hand. Career, family, home, sports, school, health, ministry. All these things are really good things that we spend a lot of time pouring ourselves out into. But I think we need to be careful that they don't become ultimate things. If success is our chief desire in one of these good things, it's possibly at the cost of the best thing, serving our God. In Genesis 3, we, we really see this here. Satan says, you will not die when you eat this fruit. You'll be like God. You will not die when you eat this fruit. You will be like God. In so many ways, especially in like middle-class America, and we just try to be like God. We try to be successful and seen as successful in the things that we think will bring us attention and fame and fortune. In its end, it's, it's literally like running on a hamster wheel. Like you're not, you're not doing anything with the works of your own hand. This is deep pride. It's a de desperate desire to control outcomes. Do you have sh like a hard time resting? It's possible that you're not pursuing the ultimate thing, which is serving God, but you're seeking to place yourself as ultimate and whatever you think will be impressive to your friends. Last thing, Satan disorients us to fight against our brothers and sisters in Christ. Satan disorients us to fight against our brothers and sisters in Christ. Galatians 5.15 says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So we see in this letter that God sovereignly places us in the midst of many relationships. Marriage, family, employment, church. I would be a fool if I did not believe that Satan was actively trying to turn us against one another. So as believers in Christ, we need to be very mindful of this. Do not grow cold and bitter against your brother and sister. It is the work of the devil. Be careful. Do not be disoriented with bitterness that leads to isolation. Yes, you are going to be offended. Yes, you're going to be hurt. Do not allow an opportunity of the devil to seek in and separate you from your family. If you are one who is in isolation, if you're one who is jealous, you don't feel like you're hanging with the in crowd, like, that's work of Satan. Do not be overwhelmed with isolation. Do not be consumed with bitterness against your brother. So in the face of such powerful opposition with Satan, our enemy, in this text, we are left with actual hope. Paul does not leave us hanging. So we see here in Ephesians the hope that we have against our enemy. Verse 10 and 11, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. There's hope there. So what's our hope? One is we have hope because God gives us his power and strength to stand against the schemes of the devil. That verse or that, that word in 10, be strong, it literally is passive, so it means be made strong. God himself gives us his strength and we see that clearly in this passage. And that's really good news, because as strong as Satan is, he's way more powerful than you. He's wily, but he's strong. He's not stronger than God. Was God created? Is Satan eternal, all-powerful? No, like there's a clear trump card here. God is the most powerful thing in all this universe. Even the greatest forces of evil will bow to him. We have hope because God gives us that power. Secondly, we have hope 
because we are not charged to win the war, but rather we are called to stand firm against the enemies. We're not charged to win the war. We're called to stand firm against our enemy. What does that mean? Those verses there that, that is the source of God's power in the strength of his might, the same words used in Ephesians 1, 18 through 20. Let me read that, Ephesians 1, 18 through 20. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. So this is what's going on. The power of God, the God who is the most powerful thing in the universe, is put on display when he raises Christ from the dead and seats him at his right hand. The devil has been incredibly successful since Genesis 3, deceiving man, getting us to rebel and disobey God, but he ultimately failed to deceive Christ. So Christ, who is God's son, comes into the earth and lives this perfect, obedient life, always putting the Father's will as supreme. He lives a perfect life in obedience to the point of death as a provision for us. So in our sin, we deserve to die and experience the wrath of God, but Christ steps in and takes that in our place. And in the power of his resurrection, he is raised that we might have new life in him. So because of Christ, in the midst of this war, we can confidently stand firm against the a work of the enemy or the attack of the enemy because Jesus is sitting in victory at the right hand of the Father. Like, don't miss that. Like, there is war, it is hard. You are called to stand. You can confidently do so because Christ is victoriously sitting. We stand firm because Christ is sitting in victory. Lastly, we have hope because through Christ, God gives us everything we need to stand against the enemy. We have hope because that through Christ, God gives us everything that we need to stand against the enemy. So here we see the way that we stand against the enemy is to put on the armor of God in this text. To stand against the enemy, to have a shot, you put on the armor of God. Essentially, it's the same thing as what Paul is saying in Ephesians 4, when he says, put off your old self and put on your new self. Put on your new self, created after the likeness of God and the true righteousness and holiness. So by putting on the armor of God, you're putting on your new self, you are putting on Christ. It, it, it's funny because all of this armor actually references, well not all of it, most of this armor actually references prophecy in Isaiah, where it's talking about a coming Messiah King who triumphs against the evil one. So literally, when you put on the armor of God, you're putting on the armor that Christ has worn and fought and defeated Satan and evil. So belt of truth is the first one there. We see in Isaiah 11:5 that this coming Messiah puts on righteousness as his belt around his waist. Righteousness meaning like accuracy, honesty, truthfulness. The breastplate of righteousness, Isaiah 59:17, it says that Christ put on righteousness as his breastplate. Shoes with the gospel of peace in Isaiah 52, seven. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring the good news, who publishes peace. Again, in Ephesians, we see that Christ is the one that proclaims peace to a, a lost world. 
helmet of salvation. Back in Isaiah 59, it says that he puts on his head a helmet of salvation and sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. In Isaiah 11, it says, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. With the gospel of Jesus Christ, he shall banish the wicked and bring us into his peace. Because of the finished work of Christ, we get an opportunity, as Adam and Eve did, to reflect God, to reflect his image in worship through our time, our resources, and our actions. We get the good opportunity to submit ourselves to Christ the King instead of deserting him and joining forces with evil. Through the finished work of Christ, we get to image God instead of deserting him and joining the forces of evil. So what happens when that, that doesn't happen? Like, we're not batting a thousand. Like, certainly there are things that lead us to shame. There are certainly things where we pridefully put ourselves above the most holy God. But I thought, like, I thought it was all done. I thought Christ finished the battle. Peter O'Brien, a commentator on Ephesians, explains this reality like this. Christ has already triumphed over the evil powers, but we have not yet realized the full fruits of that victory. This is why we are urged to wage war by being equipped with divine power to stand against evil forces. So what he's saying here is Christ has triumphed against evil, but we have not yet experienced the fullness of that. As long as you're walking on this earth, you still struggle with your old self and your new self. You still struggle to put on Justin or put on Christ. So ultimately, because Satan is a liar and because our sinful flesh leads us away from God, we struggle, we struggle with this. Example of this is I, I love to play like with my three-year-old son and he got the sweet Captain America shield and we'll go in the basement and we got all these like Chuck E. Cheese balls and it's like a battle. He doesn't even wanna use the shield, so I get the shield, which is pretty cool. And he like chucks balls at me. And every time we do it, and he might, might hit me once or twice with the ball, but like definitively that battle ended before it started. I destroy him. Like no mercy, I'm like popping balls with my shield, like three at a time, same thing. Like we may take a few hits, but definitively Christ has won the war. I'll tell a story. About 10 years ago, there was a guy named Bo Bergdahl. Some of you may know the name. 10 years ago, Bo Bergdahl. Bo was a US Army soldier stationed in Afghanistan, 2009. Made famous because he deserted his post. So Bo is in Afghanistan, leaves his post, literally just wanders out, and is, you know, surprise, surprise, taken by Taliban forces, captive. So what happens after that is there's uh, serious efforts to get Bo. So lots of his soldiers around him uh, are commissioned to go and find Bo. According to some, to some of the soldiers that were involved in those efforts, roughly six soldiers died trying to find Bo Bergdahl, who left the base. Bo was eventually released, not because of finding them, it was in a prisoner exchange program. And he was charged and pled guilty to desertion and misbehavior before the enemy. So this is recently made popular through a podcast called Serial. And it's crazy, they interview a lot of these guys that were put on missions to go find Bo, a lot of the guys that hung with Bo before he left the camp. And they hate that dude. Like, seriously hate him. Like, they are mad, they feel like he is a, an enemy. 
feel like he loves Taliban forces more than the US government. But most particularly that stood out is they hate him because their friends died for him. They went on these missions and the people they know died looking for this guy. Hate this guy. Often we find ourselves like Bo, for maybe no good reason at all, wandering away from the good graces of God, captured by the enemy. But unlike many of the soldiers involved in the plan to find and rescue Bo, Jesus delights to rescue us and bring us back home. Even at the ultimate cost of his life, Jesus seeks to rescue those who have deserted him. So we need to remember this, maybe even believe it for the first time. It doesn't matter the weight that is crushing your head. It doesn't matter how far or long you have rebelled against God. You have a holy God who is all loving and does not want to see his children destroyed. He wants his children to come home. He's glorified when his children find joy in him. He's a God who literally from the moment that man took a bite of the fruit in the garden has been slowly and faithfully and patiently executing a plan to overcome their sin and overcome death and overcome Satan in hopes that they might be adopted again as children into his family to enjoy his good presence. So what the heck do you do? If you are Bo, if you find yourself far off, if you find yourself constantly wandering off away and deserting our good God, what do you do? I think we need to take this very seriously. You need to confess your disobedience against the holy God. First thing, confess your disobedience against the holy God. You've deserted him. But do not be overwhelmed with the schemes of the devil. Don't hesitate, confess it. Talk to somebody today. It is Satan who wants you to hide that. It is Satan who wants you to keep that in the darkness. It's your flesh. Talk to somebody today that you trust to confess how you've disobeyed against God. If you don't know anyone here that you trust, there's gonna be lovely people in the back that wanna pray for you. Secondly, what do you do after you've confessed? You believe. In faith, we believe that God has given us everything that we need in Christ. Everything that we need in Christ to enjoy him. And finally, what do you do? With all of your life, everything that you have, you stand firm against the attacks of the enemy, knowing that you are in Christ and Christ is victorious. Stand firm against the attacks of the enemy because you know that you are in Christ and Christ is victorious. Finally, Paul leads us out of the spiritual armor into a lengthy section on prayer. I do not think this is a coincidence. I think prayer and our spiritual warfare that we are waging is hand in hand. So I just wanna make three points on prayer here. Prayer is important in our effort to stand firm against the enemy and advance the kingdom of God. One, it is persistent prayer that displays our dependence on God. Persistent prayer displays our dependence on God. So how do we know that we are relying on the Lord and his strength? Because we lean into him on prayer. I really, really, really would love to see this place, this church, be one that recognizes that our strength comes in taking our weaknesses before the Lord. Like so easily we, we, we ourselves scheme to accomplish and do and run. I would love, like I would love it if the prayer team wasn't the easiest job in this church. Like no one ever goes back there and prays with them. 
Like, I, I want to be a people that proclaim that in our weakness, we can connect through prayer to a strong God. Two, in light of spiritual warfare that rages on, we must pray for one another. So if this is true, and if there is an enemy that is attacking our brothers and sisters whom we love, we're foolish not to pray for them. If we know that we can connect to a God who gives us his power, we must pray for our brothers and sisters. So real tangible step, every day this week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I want you to take five minutes, five minutes a day, pray for the pastors of this church. So these are folks who have uh, agreed, covenanted to help you. They want to see you glorify God. They have committed their lives to serving you. Five minutes a day, pray for them, and then also pray for the folks in your Missio community or the people you're doing life with. Pray for your brothers and sisters. Five minutes. And lastly, prayer should focus our minds and our actions on the mission. And mission should focus our minds and our actions on prayer. This like blew me away when I was reading this. In verse 19 and 20, we see Paul, the apostle, writer of this letter, let us in on the fact that he is in chains. Likely he is under house arrest. And he's writing this letter to his brothers in Ephesus and what does he ask for prayer for? It's not food. It's not that the jailer falls asleep and he can like get out and like go do something. He asks for prayer that he can boldly proclaim the mysteries of the gospel that some might believe. And if you go back and read in Acts, he actually gets a chance to do that. He gets to go before the Jewish leaders of Rome and proclaim the gospel of Christ and it says that some believed. I think he gets it. I think he gets that prayer is ultimately connected to mission. The more we're praying is likely the more that we're on mission and the more that we are actually on mission to proclaim the gospel, the more we are forced into dependency in prayer. 30 years ago, a pastor named John Piper wrote this book, Desiring God, and he like famously referred to prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie. So he says, prayer is not a household call to get the thing that you need right now, like the pillow from the other room. Prayer is literally given to folks that are commissioned into battle to advance God's kingdom for the sake of his glory that connects them directly with the almighty general that is God. Use that. Be on mission, call the God who will give you perfect tactical advice in all of life, who will help you overcome the enemy. So the last tangible thing I want you to do is spend five minutes every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, praying for somebody that needs to believe in Jesus and pray that you would get an actual opportunity to tell them. So if you do this right, and I did my math right, you will have spent 10 minutes a day for six days, meaning one hour. You will spend one hour praying. Like I was said in the first service, I spend like 50 hours on the bus driving from Mason to downtown, from downtown to Mason. I know you all spend like a million hours on Facebook. So literally one hour over one week, it might be the most important hour, the most important way you spend your time. One hour. So I'll, I will leave you with this last story and I'll be done. Some of you may know it, most of you are likely not. 1857, 1857, New York City. Times are bad, economic downturn, many people like transient moving in and out of the city, lots of people fleeing, lots of churches depleting. Church, 
called North Dutch Reformed Church on Fulton and William Street. They want to fix this essentially. So what do they do? They hire a 49-year-old guy named Jeremiah Lanfear who is a local businessman in New York City. Just a lay guy, not a pastor, not like theologically trained. And they hire him as the city missionary. His job was to get more people into the church. His job was to see the souls of New York City meet and believe in Jesus and experience life for the first time. So Jeremiah is commissioned with this task. Uh, spends about three months doing his like marketing thing, goes around to all the schools and businesses, people in the square, passing out pamphlets, trying to get people to come to church. Not much success. So Jeremiah becomes burdened and desperate. He understands, he's a guy that knows that only by a movement of God will lives be changed. So what does he do? He is literally burdened to start a weekly Wednesday noonday prayer, noon hour prayer. So he, his thought is, there's a lot of people in this city working jobs, they got lunch break, they might wanna step out of their office and come pray for a little bit. So he prints up all these pamphlets, passes them out, and on September 23rd, 1857 at noon, on the third floor in the back of North Dutch Reformed Church, Jeremiah kicks off his prayer meeting. Exciting. So he shows up, probably a little bit early, not, no one's there yet, walks up the steps, goes in the back, starts to set up and prepare. Noon comes, no one's there. I probably would have left. Jeremiah stays. Jeremiah's desperate. Jeremiah prays. So he starts to pray. Five minutes go by. No one. 10 minutes, no one, 15, 20, 25. I definitely would have been out by that point. He's still praying. 30 minutes in, he hears something. Someone starts to walk up the steps. Praise be to God, someone's joining him in prayer. So he's got one person 30 minutes into his first prayer meeting that's going to join him in crying out to the God who is powerful to save souls in the city. Over the course of the next 30 minutes, they achieve a whopping number of six people. Six people, first time prayer meeting. I don't know about you, I would have not done that. I would have chalked that up to a failed attempt. But Jeremiah was desperate. He knew that he needed to call out to God. So he does it again the next Wednesday. 20 people show up, it's not bad. Next Wednesday, 40. At that point, there's some momentum. They decide to go from a weekly Wednesday meeting to a daily meeting. Three months into this thing, people were gathered on all three floors of North Dutch Reformed Church on Fulton Street in New York City, crying out to God literally writing on papers names of people that they want to see saved. People standing up saying, I just, I need prayer for my son, falling to their feet and crying. All three floors packed. Three months after that, so six months in, there are 6,000 people in New York City gathering every single day to cry out to God. Literally, they had to come up with rules that says you can only come in and pray for five minutes and then you gotta go because we don't got the space. They would open every meeting reading the rules and saying you have to abide by them and get out. But not only that, six months in, there were 6,000 in New York City. There was also 6,000 in Pittsburgh, 2,000 in Chicago, 4,000 in Philadelphia. Prayer meetings were popping up all over the country, New Orleans to Mobile, Alabama, and right here in Cincinnati, Ohio. It's likely that we are experiencing the fruit of Jeremiah Lampier's work in 1857. In May of 1858, just eight months after that first meeting, it was reported that 50,000 people had become believers in Jesus in New York City alone. 50,000. There are literally historical news reports from towns across America saying that there is not a single person left in their town who does not know and love and follow Jesus. 
That's crazy. 15 months after the original prayer meeting that Jeremiah Lamphere started with six people, it was reported that a million people in America were born again into a relationship with God. There were only 30 million people in America at the time. A million people. So why am I telling you this crazy story of the last time that got like dramatically removed in our country? Because last week, Pastor Justin got up here and he made this comment about global missions. And if you look at the church, it's statistically shrinking. So he talked about a pie chart and how the pie chart was getting smaller and smaller and smaller. I tell you that that is a present reality, but we have an eternal promise that even the greatest forces of evil cannot stand against the advancement of the kingdom of God. We need to believe that. We need to enter into that being dependent on God. So we need to do two things. We need to speak the hope of the good news of Jesus that we have in the darkness around us. And then we need to desperately cling to our all-powerful God in prayer that he might actually move. Pray with me. God, forgive us for not seeing you as who you are, powerful and loving. God, I pray that the words spoken here today would change us. I pray that your spirit would move us, that we would be a people who are desperate to see you lifted up and glorified in the midst of our city. We love you. We are thankful and pray in the strong name of Christ. Amen.